Welcome to the podcast of Ideas. This is a recording of the debate, Civil Liberties in Times of Corona, which took place via Zoom on Monday the 5th of October 2020. The event is chaired by Claire Fox. Hello everyone. Um, Let's be honest, this is a historic occasion, largely because in the whole of lockdown, I've not managed to chair one Zoom debate for the Academy of Ideas. So I'm very anxious and dependent on Ellen that I don't mess it up. But I was very keen to chair this uh, special lockdown debate, this town hall meeting, civil liberties in times of corona. How do we balance uh, necessary restrictions with freedom during pandemic? I wanted to chair this one because it's such an urgent and prescient discussion. It just feels as though there's so many things that we need to get to grips with at the moment. So I'm glad to be doing it. In a minute, I'll introduce our panel of the speakers for tonight's discussion. But I've got a few things that I just want to run through. Um, Just to let you know that we are recording this event, so if you want to speak, then the recording will be publicly available afterwards, so just bear that in mind. We at the Academy of Ideas do want you to speak, because all of the Academy of Ideas events, uh, we always devote as much time as possible to audience discussion and questions. It's not so much a kind of panel of experts lecturing at you, but they're going to kick off what we hope will be a collegiate public conversation and a bit of thinking out loud, so don't really have to have a definitive position. You can ask questions, you can mull things over. So when we've heard from the speakers, who will be given one of their, uh, um, uh, a strict five minutes to do their introductions. If you want to speak uh, or make a point, what you have to do for those of you who are new to Zoom, if you go to the bottom of your screen, there's a button marked participants. And if you click on that button, it should bring up a white dialogue box to the right of your screen. And at the bottom of that, you'll see a blue button marked raise hand. And that's the button that you click on if you want to ask a question. There's also a chat function next to participants. Usually that's where it is. And so if you click on that, you can also write some points if you want to join in a a chatty discussion as the debate's going on. I'd also like to make an appeal, as everybody does. We all know that Times are are pretty uh, hard for people economically, and I hope you're all surviving. But we at the Academy of Ideas, we decided not to furlough anyone during this period of time. We thought it was going to be a short lockdown period, but, you know, it hasn't been. And so everyone has carried on working and we've worked really very hard, all my team and colleagues. Um, But we do want to be able to keep going. And we haven't, of course, been able to do the usual things that we would have done in terms of raising sponsorship for our public events. So we'd really appreciate any support you can give us financially and somebody will put a link on the donations page. So if you've got anything, no matter how small and obviously even better if large, then that would be really appreciated. And just before I introduce the speakers, just a couple of thoughts on the themes. You know, the Academy of Ideas is associated with arguing for free speech and civil liberties. And you might think that this is just going to be a bit of an echo chamber tonight that you know, we're all going to just moan about attacks on civil liberties. But I suppose what I wanted to do is just dig a bit deeper. You know, the changes that we've seen in recent uh, months, particularly intensifying in recent weeks, are emergency powers. And one of the questions I want to ask is whether describing this as authoritarian or totalitarian is too much hyperbole. Is that our own version of scaremongering? Some people will argue against me when I say that I'm very worried and say, well, these are just temporary measures because of a pandemic, let's stop overreacting. And I think that that's something we should consider. 
I also think it's worth pointing out that what would we do if the government had simply asked us to voluntarily uh, show solidarity by keeping away from people's social distancing or what have you? What if people don't comply to that? Has the state got a right to protect, to act? What do we think on that? And then if you do think that this is a serious assault on civil liberties, as I think many of us will think that and are worried, what do we do about it? Should we use the law to try and redress the balance? Some people are taking out judicial reviews. Others are suggesting civil disobedience, that actually we actively do something. Um, if it's in fact a minority of people who are worried about uh, civil liberties at the moment, and that's not what everybody thinks, then how best do we persuade the majority that this is a serious issue? How do we relate to demonstrations that perhaps are being run by what some people consider to be conspiracy theory cranks? And if we wanted to organize our own demonstrations or anything, how would we cope with the fines when there's so many draconian uh, obstacles to actually having a public demonstration? So there's lots to discuss. And I just don't want it to be that we all kind of uh, either moan collectively together or pat each other on the back because I don't think there's any easy answers myself. Okay, let's meet our speakers in the order in which they'll speak. First of all, we're gonna hear from Ruth Smith. She is the new Chief Executive CEO of Index on Censorship, fantastically important organization and we're delighted Ruth joined us. Ruth herself is a former Labour MP for Stoke-on-Trent North and Kidsgrove. And before that was a former uh, deputy director for Hope Not Hate. So I think all of those roles put her in a very good position to reflect on these questions. Then we'll be hearing from Patrick O'Flynn, who's a political commentator. He's the Social Democrat Party uh, SDP Brexit spokesman. He was an MEP for the East of England uh, between 2014 and 2019. He's a former political editor of the Daily Express and on social media, he certainly raises some very interesting uh, arguments and challenges and has been writing some fantastic articles recently that have certainly made me think. Then we're gonna hear from Silky Carlos. Silky is the director of Big Brother Watch. Again, hugely important organization. I don't think given enough credit for the work that they do. Uh, Silky is the co-author of Information Security for Journalists and also I think has been raising just the right kind of questions for us to consider in terms of the assaults on civil liberties during this period. And I'm really delighted to have her as uh, one of the panelists. And then we'll finish off with Luke Gittos. Luke might be more familiar to those of you who are regular attendees of Academy of Ideas events because he, as a criminal lawyer and director of the Freedom Law Clinic and legal editor of Spike, has spoken on lots of events that we've uh, uh, organized over the years. Um, and he's also the author of Human Rights, Illusionary Freedom, a fantastic book and a challenge to the notion that human rights are uh, necessarily a good thing as often is uh, expected, uh, the, the kind of conventional wisdom. Okay, great panel. Let's uh, start. I'd like to introduce uh, Ruth then to kick us off, please. Ruth. Uh, thanks, Claire, and good evening, everybody. Not too formidable a panel, though, that I'm leading, so um, I'm almost relieved to be going first, although given what I usually read from everybody else on the panel, I'm not, I think this might be my only contribution. Um, I just wanted to set the framework and I completely agree with you. What we don't all want to do is sit here and agree about everything, but also to say, woe be me, the world is over. But I just wanted to give some context in terms of both what's happening in the UK, but also 
the COVID regulations that we're seeing across the world and the impact that that's having on, um, on our civil liberties, our collective human rights. So in terms of a British context, I think one of the things that we've all got an issue now is about not just the legislation, but the inconsistency with which some of the regulations are now applying. The fact that you can go um, 40 miles in the northwest of England at the moment, and you will hit four different types of restrictions and limitations. The inconsistency, I think, is driving us crazy. It's very, very un-British. Um, but the bigger concern, I think, for everyone on the call is actually the democratic accountability. So we've got an issue here, which we've seen um, in Parliament in terms of the lack of votes and the lack of engagement and genuinely the lack of holding people to account. But there's some, but there's more that's slipping through the net. And I think that would be my concern about what's happening politically that we aren't aware of that is still happening and that is still coming through, one of which is the impact on local media and local democratic accountability, which is one of the side effects of all of this. But also, and I wonder how many people on the call were aware that under the Scottish government's uh, COVID regulations, that they snuck in an extension to the FOI um, request. So, you know, being able to hold people to account um, and hold uh, our democracy to account really has shifted under this. So, the issue, you know, it used to be 20 days for an FOI request, now it's 60 days in Scotland, and we've seen that happen across the world in other parts too. That is a significant shift of things that we really weren't aware of. The other part of this, I think, is, you know, they were emergency measures. These were genuinely, in Britain, an emergency response to, an, uh, to a national crisis. But it's now six months on. And the fact that we are now having to re renew these measures shows that they, this is no longer an emergency, this is a new way of living. And that, then that's why this is so timely in looking at the bigger issues that we face. Just in terms of the international context, because five minutes isn't very long, but so in terms of the international context, INDEX has been undertaking a disease control um, project highlighting the attacks to free expression and free speech around the world. In the first 50 days of the COVID regulations around the world, there were 150 uh, legal infringements against free speech. That's a huge number. And they ranged from um, no longer being able to sell newspapers because um, papers would be, would pass the disease to an excuse, um, to excuses around, uh, in Brazil, around freedom of information being no longer accepted. Uh, social media restrictions, crackdown on fake news, which we've seen across the piece. All of those things have had an attack on our free speech. From an index perspective, I think it's really a time to look at, to have the conversation about why free speech is so important and what it really means at a time of national crisis. And that is not happened at all during this. We've been very, very proper British citizens. There was a crisis. We were asked all to come together to fix it. We weren't given, a, we weren't, didn't have a national conversation about how we would collectively fix it. And candidly, with my old hat on, I think that's why the government are in so much mess as we uh, mess today. Um, but I think that is my official five minutes. So back to you, Claire. Uh, that's excellent, Ruth. Thanks. And I, I think that international perspective is so important as well. But I thought that point you made about FOIs in Scotland was a nice little segue into it. A lot of the times we don't even know what's going on. I can't kind of quite, quite keep up with it. So uh, very useful start. Thanks, Ruth. OK, Patrick, your thoughts, please. Uh, hi, yeah, um, I'm glad we called the debate, or you called the debate, how do we balance necessary restrictions 
or with freedom because some restrictions uh, are necessary and the state does have a legitimate role. Uh, I think purely an approach uh, where you say, well, I'll do what I want. And if you want to protect yourself, you do that. Uh, that's very easily dismantled and has been by Michael Gove uh, and indeed Boris Johnson without going to the extent of Matt Hancock saying uh, you're going to kill granny. Um, but so uh, liberties are also precious. So I think uh, the thing I'm interested in, one of the things is proportionality being the key. You know, this is a 0.5% killer. It's not like Ebola in Africa, a 50% killer. Uh, so, it, so it's 100 times less fatal than that. And it's also, we know, not an equal, equal opportunities um, killer. So is it proportionate, for instance, to have students newly arrived in cities in the dark and the cold locked down when we had, for instance, Northumbria University, 778 cases, uh, only 78 symptomatic, no one going to hospital. I think in Glasgow, 172 confirmed cases, no one having to be hospitalised. And yet those young people, particularly in Scotland, told even if they were to venture into a pub, they'd be thrown out of university uh, and not be able to claim um, their fees back. To me, that's clearly not proportionate uh, and it's not sensible. Um, now, the other thing I'm interested in is, is we're very much seeing, I think, government by focus group and opinion poll. And people I speak to in government uh, say it's being polled all the time. And you see when the government has announced the various distancing measures, lockdowns, clampdowns and whatever, uh, quite quickly, there's often an opinion poll that shows, lo and behold, three quarters of the public uh, agree with them. So, so they're not doing this into a vacuum. They're not doing this uh, randomly. Uh, now, that to me... Uh, is almost a textbook definition of dictatorship uh, by the majority. Uh, and I thought we had a human rights regime that was meant to bolster minority protections. And you couldn't just have dictatorship of the, uh, of the majority. And certainly we've had over the years people from my uh, political outlook very frustrated at some of the uh, people who've arrived in Britain illegally and can't be deported because of uh, uh, appeals under various clauses of the Human Rights Act. Uh, and yet, when we get at a, a cross-society issue like this uh, and liberties in jeopardy, the human rights regime seems to have vanished. It certainly seems to be out of reach uh, to the ordinary person, and the human rights lobby seems to have fallen uh, silent. And I'm particularly concerned about the next potential wave uh, of measures where you have the, the health minister in the Welsh government explicitly not ruling out compulsory vaccination. Uh, Matt Hancock uh, wants to get the, the military involved in the vaccination process when it happens. There'll obviously be huge uh, propaganda too. And I think the government's got out of the habit of trying to govern via persuasion because it's governing by decree with Parliament essentially mothballed uh, for months. Uh, I thought we had a party with Liberal in its name in the House of Commons, and yet they, I'm aware of no intervention from a Liberal Democrat that, that's raised any issue about liberty. We seem to have a monopoly uh, of opinion behind every lockdown and distancing measure, bar, you know, Des Swain and one or two uh, mavericks. So uh, I'm particularly concerned with another bit, which is, I think is how far can the state roll forward in the British system? What are the actual controls on the limits, particularly if they become very aggressive about vaccination and we're dealing with an asymmetrical threat with this disease? Why should young people and even middle-aged people take a punt on an unproven rushed uh, vaccine 
perhaps with all kinds of, uh, uh, you could call them incentives, but it could be more stick than carrot, you know, being uh, barred from, from public services, barred from being able to go out if they haven't got the vaccine uh, stamp. So I, I think the, the, the thing under the microscope most for me is this fabled human rights regime, which has often protected uh, people who've done bad things in our society going missing in action when it's most needed. Uh, thanks, Patrick. Again, really useful. Um, I think the vaccine issue or, or is, is causing some concern at the moment, this idea of enforced vaccination. But I think the main thing that you said that's really useful is just that sense of um, things being proportionate and feeling as though there's a blanket regime being imposed on everyone and not knowing where to go. On the human rights issue, I'm sure that Luke will have things to say, but I think you've just raised some really helpful ways of, of, of looking at the issue. So thank you very much. Okay, so um, now we have Silky, please. Thanks so much. And thanks very much to the Academy of Ideas for organizing this uh, really timely debate. And I have to say, I think this is probably the event that I've done with the most people in here. We have 170 people here now, which is incredible. Um, so if I can use the, the few minutes that I have as a rallying call to rational people, that now is a time when we have to look after our liberties and look after each other more than ever, because we're in a very, very dangerous place and life has completely changed and values are changing beneath our feet and beyond recognition. Already in the past six months, as we all have endured, the nation was put under house arrest. Every single inch of everyday life has now been legislated, regulated, and for the most part, actually criminalized. There's no obvious public health benefit to a lot of this. Some of it is even counterproductive. Look at the curfew, for instance. There's no evidence base for much of it and no evidence base has been provided, even when it's le been legally required. And there's been no democratic process either. Um, these rules, and now we have across all of the, the nations of the UK, well in excess of 400 statutory instruments, which have by and large been, been brought into force uh, by the pens of ministers rather than um, democratically elected uh, MPs. And even ministers don't know what half of these laws are. In fact, even the prime minister doesn't and ordinary people have absolutely no chance. And amidst all of this authoritarianism, there's no symmetry with provisions and things that would support public health. Instead, we, we, we have um, uh, this very punitive system has been created around us that seems to trade on blame and criminalization and, and punishment. I don't know what happened to the field hospitals, uh, but they never seem to be full and they never seem to be used. And in fact, uh, people are now going undiagnosed, untreated for all sorts of things. There doesn't seem to be an awful lot of quarantine support. Um, when people come back, even if they come back from countries um, that are on the quarantine list, they make their own way to, to a quarantine place on public transport. Um, in fact, even some, some of our MPs have done that. Uh, so there's no real support um, for public health support. In fact, we don't even have a functioning test and trace system, as we have found out today. Um, the people that we should be most worried about are the clinically vulnerable and also socially vulnerable. But one of the extraordinary things in the Coronavirus Act is that 
um, care requirements have been slashed, not increased. So the most vulnerable people in our communities are actually being left adrift by their local authorities because we have this fundamentalist coronavirus approach that puts this particular virus above all else, above everything else in society, and this is incredibly dangerous. An opportunity for course correction was missed, um, was it this week, last week, um, with the Coronavirus Act renewal vote. Um, unfortunately, in just 90 minutes, this act, which is of constitutional significance, that has unprecedented uh, conferral of powers to ministers to ban protests, ban, uh, sorry, cancel elections, arbitrarily det detain people, was renewed in 90 minutes with the opposition, uh, with six honourable exception, exceptions missing in action. Absolutely despicable. So now I think it's down to us. I think it's down to each and every one of us to, to take this incredible care about our liberties and about our loved ones. I saw two news stories today that really made me think about this and you may have seen them too. One of them was a man racially abusing a 16 year old girl and then eventually kicking her in the face for not wearing a mask on a bus. The other one was a family at a funeral in Milton Keynes um, who were sitting uh, two meters apart from one another and the mother sobbing at the funeral of her uh, deceased husband was stopped from uh, her, her son went to console her and he was abruptly stopped and, and told to move apart. This is what worries me actually probably even more than these awful laws is when this authoritarian drift starts to infect the public psyche and change the way that we behave and the way that we are to each other. That is something we have to be incredibly cautious of because then really the game is lost. We cannot play this suspicion and blame game amongst each other. We need to have, I mean, I'm just drawing very quickly on what Patrick said about rights. Um, human rights are absolutely imp vitally important um, in our society, that they're, they're the anchor for modern society, and so it's it's the human rights frameworks that we have to that we have to look at now. But they they don't operate by themselves. We have to have, you know, uh, for example, a, a a human rights experienced QC in the opposition who's willing to actually do something about some of this, who's very well versed in human rights. Um, we should have learned from the post 9-11 years about how quickly we can drift and how quickly we can lose our frame of reference. And that's why one of the things we're doing at Big Brother Watch is producing monthly reports on emergency powers and civil liberties um, so that we can look back and actually and actually uh, monitor that drift. And the reason that I decided to do that was because around it was around uh, the second week of March, I read a news article via a friend in Denmark. And Denmark introduced a law that closed borders, enforced lockdowns, and even introduces mandatory vaccines, even though there isn't yet a vaccine uh, in relation to coronavirus. I found it absolutely chilling that this could happen overnight. And I know that we are not that far away from a similar, in fact, I mean, we've already or, almost already ticked all of those boxes. So we have to have, we have to have an anchor, we have to have a frame of reference to draw us back to something that's recognisable to a free 
and liberal society. I want us to remember the first few weeks of this crisis when community groups came together, we were doing food shopping for our elders, we were looking after each other, millions of people volunteered. It's that kind of voluntary action and, and community care that's important to get through this, not authoritarianism, not blame games and not suspicion. And that's what I will, that's my message for today. Uh, thanks, Silky. Um, I'm sure if you put in the chat, you know, a link to Big Brother Watch, because I think that even following and trying to keep up with the detail of the legislative changes and the things that are going on, the statutory instruments, I mean, it's almost impossible. And half the time, I don't know whether I'm tweeting fake news, I can't quite decide. So having somewhere reliable would be really handy. Um, I, I think you described well both the contrast between the so-called parliamentary rebellion which, you know, you just think, God, if that's a rebellion. And, and then uh, contrasted it with that, that terrible scene, particularly the one at the funeral, where, where you, you saw the kind of inhumanity in some ways, the lack of social solidarity. And I think you're warning that we have to be careful that the new normal doesn't become just less freedom. We just accept it, that we don't even need the laws, but that we actually spontaneously do that is something well worth uh, discussing. Um, I'm, I'm going to uh, ask Luke to speak now, um, but to remind everyone that one of the new normals, sadly, um, has been that even having debates and discussions has become slightly tricky at the moment because people get called COVID idiots or they get called, called COVID deniers or conspiracy theorists and you don't really know. So this is a kind of time for open discussion. So after Luke's finished, we'll be going out to you at the participants at this discussion. So start um, waving your hand or raising your hand around. But now let's hear from Luke, thanks. Thanks, Claire. Um, in her book, The Human Condition, the, philosopher, the German philosopher Hannah Arendt began by drawing a distinction between three kinds of human activity, which she called work, labor and action. Work is the activity that we have to do in order to keep ourselves alive, eating, drinking, etc. what we do to take care of ourselves as biological beings. Labour, she described, is the means through which we reconstitute the physical world around us, building houses, making tools, etc. But it's the third uh, area of life that I wanted to talk about tonight, and that is action. Action for Aaron is the activity which, in her words, corresponds to the condition of plurality, to the fact that men, not man, lives on the earth. It is how we live together, as in Aristotle's words, political animals. It's an action through conducting ourselves as groups in the sphere of action that our, beh our behavior is capable of having any meaning at all beyond ourselves. It is through me the means through which we constitute our democratic life. It's the way that otherwise powerless people can assert their power. And this is why we should be worried that the sphere of action, the capacity for human beings to create meaning through their behavior with one another, which has been targeted and shut down by the lockdown. Now, the lockdown in its various forms, I don't think is unprecedented. I think it borrows a lot from the law that was by previous governments used to control antisocial behaviour. And that, you know, that kind of law that we've seen in community protection notices, ASBOs, etc., has been introduced by successive governments, including New Labour and the Coalition. But what I think is unprecedented in this lockdown is the, present the presentation of ordinary social life, what Aaron called the sphere of action, as antisocial in itself. The reduction of the sole means through which humans create meaning, i.e. communal activity, to a problem to be managed. I think it's worth us making the case that spontane spontaneous and thought out human action is actually a far better response to COVID-19 than the arbitrary and ill thought out rules that we've seen so far. And in many ways, I think history is proving this a bit of a no brainer. 
We can talk a lot about the health risks that the lockdown has led to, the economic damage that the lockdown is creating. There are all sorts of reasons that Silky and others have highlighted in their work about parliamentary scrutiny, the fact that legislation is drafted with the knowledge that it will simply never be scrutinized, is therefore clumsy, ill thought out, unenforceable, uh, or at best enforceable in arbitrary and ill thought out ways. But I think there are some even more fundamental reasons to stand up for individual judgment and communal life in response to defeating threats. First, I hope I'm not the only one who feels as though the lockdown has had a deep impact on human agency. Why open a business? Why take a university course? Why leave your parents home? Why leave your own home? When these things are so often conceived of merely as the site of risk. We may be free to do many of the things we could not do back in March when the lockdown was first imposed. But what we are now slipping into is a society in which spontaneous or creative activity is made close to impossible not just by the lingering threats of further restrictions or the lingering sense that our state is liable to behave in entirely unpredictable ways, but also a worrying social idea that such action in itself is irresponsible or not worthwhile or against society's interests. The lockdown, I think, is also an assault on our moral agency. These rules, and as has been pointed out, endless numbers of them, new rules being introduced every day, often with five minutes notice, etc. They actually prevent us from deciding to do the right thing for ourselves. The reality is that communities, uh, families, uh, communal units will always know the best thing, the best way of how to deal with a problem in the circumstances they are faced with. The lockdown prevents people from making free moral decisions about how they behave. And it didn't have to be this way. We could have created something like a lockdown through informal guidance, which would then be trusted by people to interpret in a way which worked with their communities with the people that they know. They could have balanced the risk of the potential risk of infection with the risk of leaving people isolated. This would not have meant that irresponsible or immoral behavior would have been free from censure. And I think this raises an important point about the role of the law. We could have recognized that the law has a limited power to fairly adjudicate the minutiae of people's behavior. And when it tries to do so, it inevitably leads to unjust and unequal results. I currently act for clients being prosecuted for attending a demonstration in Trafalgar Square. These are often one or two among 500 people that were present. How do the police choose who to prosecute? It's often entirely arbitrary, not to mention the fact that a week before that demonstration, Black Lives Matter marched in Westminster with absolutely uh, no prosecutions under the coronavirus regulations that I'm aware of. So the law inevitably comes to be complied completely unequally. I think we have to recognize that this is not a conspiracy to grab our civil liberties, but it was a political decision to remove people's rationality and judgment from our response to the virus. And we should treat that decision on its own political terms. There is very little evidence that hard and fast lockdowns work to control the numbers of infections or deaths. What there is evidence for is how hard and fast rules backed up by the police create heartbreak, poor health and death across society. What's worse in all of this is how the public sphere has come to be conceived of in crisis to, in the, and how it might be conceived of in crises to come. We should not accept the idea that the public has to be managed out of engaging in these crises. We should not attempt to uh, reduce our, uh, we should not be reduced to spectators in our nation's response to this virus or in crises to come. So how should we go about resisting the lockdown? I don't think we should engage in pantomime, in breaking rules for the sake of it, but we should make judgment calls about the elderly and vulnerable people who we should continue to see no matter what the rules say. 
we should make judgment calls about when having seven people in a room as opposed to six is perfectly acceptable. We should make judgment calls about when it is safe to host an indoor team sport. And we ought to resist the idea that public communal activity is a problem to be managed in the face of crisis. If we take one lesson from this lockdown, it's that we cannot simply resort to decommissioning the public in the face of society's threats. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Luke. A very passionate defence there of, of agency and action in a particular way. I think very helpful, um, both inspiring but challenging as to how you do it and um, whatever about the public being decommissioned, the public at this event certainly haven't been decommissioned, so there's loads of them with their hands up, so I'm going to go straight out. Um, I'm aware of the fact as well that Ruth has very kindly fitted her timetable around us tonight and does have to leave earlier than the other speakers. So I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take four or five hands first, then I'm going to come back and get the panel and then I'll take a few more hands and then I'll take Ruth just before she finally has to go, just so she gets a couple of bites at, at, at kind of coming back on people. Well, let me start with John Tennant and then we'll uh, followed by Kat. But John Tennant to start, my, uh, my colleague who, welcome, John, my former Hi. colleague. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I mean, just I've, I've got quite a lot of uh, points to make, but I'll try and make them as as quickly and succinctly as I possibly can. I do, I do notice a lot, a lot of interested people there. Um, just to point out to some people who don't know that I, I am a, uh, an existing sitting councillor uh, in Hartlepool who's had actually been involved in much of the uh, latest hoo-ha with regard to the Hartlepool latest lockdown um, changes. So, so basically, I, I absolutely agree that you know there has been a, a consistent inconsistency of the uh, of the regulations. There's been a poor application of them. There's been a poor communication. There's been a, the enforcement of such has been largely unrealistic, and uh, particularly in my own experience is that uh, national government is actually ignoring largely local knowledge, local um, information that could actually help us as a way to sort of get out of lockdown. Um, uh, coming back to the point made by somebody about, about, about the vaccination, I think um, Patrick raised the point about the use of the army, the concerns around that. I actually think that if there was a vaccine made available and it's been fully tested and controlled, then that, it, it, the, it would be important that we get that uh, that vaccination out there as quickly and as widely as possible. So the use of the army would actually be worth um, worth drafting in that in that case. But again, I do take it I do take into consideration the importance that the vaccine is safe and is uh, properly uh, tested and controlled before use. Um, John, the, John, just one more point at this point, just because so I can get some other people in. Is that all right? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I mean the biggest thing out of all of this is even even or even ourselves and as local councillors, is that we are fully aware of the fact that we've not been told anything about any form of an exit plan. I think that's becoming yeah. clearer and clearer by the minute. The government has no exit plan, and that's really really concerning. Yeah, that's so important, isn't it? And I've heard many councillors say exactly the same. Um, but thank you, John. That was really useful. Um, uh, so we've now got Cat uh, Sumner, please. Hiya. Um, I just want to make a slightly oblique point, really, is that there's this narrative that um, more laws, more rights laws, particularly and more bureaucracy, um, actually helps 
people and my circumstances have really taught me that that is not the case so there's this idea that disabled people these poor victims are now all really isolated and terribly treated and obviously I can't speak for everyone who has disability in their family but my daughter um, is disabled we've never been so free um, under these COVID restrictions because um, one of the things that um, suspending these regulations has done is just lift the burden of bureaucracy from off our shoulders. We were not getting any support beforehand. We were really isolated beforehand. Now we have access to telephone appointments that they previously refused to do. My daughter's engaging way more than she ever has done. She's actually seeing health now because they've moved online. You know, and before it was like this massive battle to get these services to understand that she wasn't necessarily capable of coming into the clinic and to, to stop them from basically saying, well, if she won't come in, we'll just discharge her. So for four years, is we've been fighting with them to do the things that all of a sudden overnight with the COVID lockdown they just did anyway so you know I'm sure this isn't the case for a lot of people but I definitely know that in social care the whole system has been absolutely collapsing under the weight of bureaucracy that is largely pointless and doesn't result in actual help for the people concerned so you know I just want to question that narrative of throwing more rights throwing more laws actually resulting in freedom because in my experience it really doesn't it just puts more pressure on you and doesn't result in any help. My God, Kat, it's good to get a good story, though, isn't it, where you're saying it's actually a bit better for us. That's very good. The problem is the rest of society is now getting the same bureaucracy that's driven you mad all those years. So, but anyway, what a Indeed. fascinating insight. Um, uh, Josephine, uh, next. Josephine Hudson. Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask a couple of questions. So the first one is um, I heard a um, scientist talk about the fact that the whole focus has moved away from do no harm to the precautionary principle. And I think this is why we don't have an exit strategy, because if you're working on the precautionary principle, better safe than sorry, how can you, what is safety? You know, you can't move away from safety, everything's unsafe. Um, but I also wanted to um, explore the difference between law and regulation, because my understanding having explored the law before was that law in this country, so I'm talking about Britain, was you could do anything unless the law said you couldn't do it. And actually, human rights legislation was the opposite of that, because human rights legislation was you, more about regulation than actual the, the space for freedom, which is what Luke was talking about. So I did wonder whether um, what our law is, is changing. It's becoming regulation instead of law now. Um, and now we have to wait for um, to be told what we can do instead of knowing we can do what we want unless the law tells us we can't do, which is what Luke was talking about, taking away our ability as adults to make a decision um, that's right for us. Um, and my final thing was, I, I do think that one of the reasons why um, we're going along with it is because our humanity is being manipulated. Um, because whenever I talk to anyone about, I want more freedom, they say, well, you know, you're basically saying, lock old people down. Do you think that's fair? And no one thinks that's fair, but no one has the, we don't seem to have the imagination at the moment to think, well, protecting the vulnerable doesn't mean just locking people down. Because for some reason, all those people who volunteered for the NHS hotline and all the other things they did at the very beginning weren't actually allowed to enter into society and become part of the solution. Um, so 
our only way of becoming part of the solution is to protect the vulnerable. Okay, thanks, uh, Josephine. Right, listen, I'm going to take uh, Richard Ings and Kevin Moore, then I'm going to come back to the panel. And panel, just pick up anything you want. You can't possibly answer all these points. Just a couple of, choose a couple of points you'd just like to reflect on. But uh, Richard next. Thanks, Joe. That was really good. Thanks, Claire. Um, can you hear me okay? Um, so we live in the maddest world where um, the arch anti-Brexit, anti-Democrat Leila Moran is, is now my heroine because she was one, despite what Patrick said, she was one of the few people that actually voted against the renewal of the Coronavirus Act last week. So we live in a world which is completely topsy-turvy and, and really uh, needs us uh, a lot of thinking about to try and understand what's going on. Two things I wanted to say is um, I, I've been a lockdown sceptic since the beginning. I, I, I tweeted on the day they uh, they put us under house arrest that I was against it. So I feel very principled on that. Um, but um, but I think the, the, what's really going on is they don't trust us uh, and they know what's best for us. And that's something which has been going on for a long, long time, clearly. But it doesn't come from nowhere. And I think where it comes from, it feels like where it's come from, it's not an authoritarian power grab. It's because we don't trust each other. You know, the government are not uh, a set of aliens, as uh, David Icke might think, um, uh, uh, trying to impose their new world order on us. They are part, they are, they reflect exactly what we think about each other. And I think it's the, the, the fundamental problem that we have is that is that we really struggle to trust each other and to think that we individually know what the best thing to do is hence the mass support for wearing masks is that we simply don't trust each other to keep distance or, or, or just not cough and, and sneeze on each other. That's one thing. The other thing I wanted to say is about freedom. Uh, this is something that I, I've been thinking about. Um, traditionally, I think freedom is thought of in, in two ways, freedom from and freedom to. Um, and other people might want, want to comment on this, is that I think we've completely gone down the road of freedom from, i.e. freedom from being infected by uh, from each other, freedom from having to justify our points of view, freedom, freedom from having to involve ourselves in a debate, uh, which is what the government's uh, 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 keen to promote, and no sense of what we are free to do. In other words, to make our own choices, uh, to be autonomous thinking individuals. And I think that, that shift, uh, which has probably been going on for a long time as well, from the idea that, that freedom is something which is sure we, we may need protecting at times but we should have the autonomy and ability to make our own decisions uh, that that has shifted massively away from that to this idea of freedom from other people okay thanks uh, uh, finally kevin before i come back to the panel uh, thank you claire uh, pleasure to see you once again uh, i'm <sighs> I live uh, now in Liverpool, and as of Saturday, we are supposed to be in a localised lockdown. Uh, as it stands at the moment, there are no guidelines, no information at all coming out of Liverpool City Council. And I've heard uh, from the good councillor from Hartlepool as well about no exit strategy, but then at least he's involved in it, at least he's communicating with his good people. Now, I like the sounds of that, uh, but the the severe lack of transparency in what people are saying is so evident. I mean, uh, let's take it from the top. Uh, we had the daily briefings. The science says, the science says. What science? All I'm seeing is pretty graphs. I want to see the raw data. Now, I have repeatedly asked for that, and I have been denied at every turn, and I would like to see the data so I could actually answer a couple of questions uh, for myself. Uh, for instance, were we delaying the inevitable, or was the, or was the science wrong in the first place? Um, 
in the pact of now, it's very, very clear to me that we've moved the goalposts from prevention to, oh, but okay, maybe what if and uh, what are the possibilities of? And this is deeply worrying because I've opened the a link up to what was put into the group of uh, the Big Brother Watch. And um, politely put, I was... I'm a, I'm a gas. I'm, I'm lost for words. So I'll leave it there, Claire. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks. Expressing a lot of frustrations that many share. OK, Ruth, can I come and start with you? Just to, any comments on anything anyone said? Obviously not all. Well, Ruth. I think just what we've seen is quite the level of frustration and anger that we're all having from this new life that we're um, being forced to live. I think from um, my perspective, and I hate to make myself thoroughly unpopular, I can understand quite how difficult it is for politicians to try and figure out their way through it. No one wants to be blamed for a loved, for an individual's loved one dying. And so when you look at it from that perspective, you can, you can understand why we've ended up here. I would hope, and I think what we've seen day after day after day is what we've ended up, why we've ended up in this position is cock up more than conspiracy. In other countries, we have not been, you know, that is not the case. They have used COVID um, as a direct attack on our human rights. But one of the things I think we've got to be really clear of, and as Kevin just said, it's and actually is, was the thing throughout, is what is the exit plan for this? Because there's only so long, I think, you know, from someone like me, who would definitely be one of the most left-wing people on this panel, but for someone like me, who would want to hope that um, everything was being done in a way that was constructive for the general public, there is simply no plan to get us out. And communications from the government has never been worse in my lifetime in terms of explaining where we are and what we need to do. So I think a huge amount of this is now a political nightmare that we are living through and complete inconsistency. And I just, you know, today should really say it all for everybody. We've got the curfew 10 o'clock. We've had people be charged for serving takeaways for a 10,000 pound fine for being serving takeaways at five minutes past 10. But the prime minister today has told everyone to go to the pictures. Um, most of which the films will finish after 10. So, you know, none of this is consistent. None of this is working. And so on that basis, it isn't surprising that we've just heard that level of frustration. I just think, you know, that my biggest concern about the way in which this has been done is that we, you know, we are policed as a country by consent. We have government by consent. And the way in which this is being applied by the government is undermining our very confidence in the systems and the institutions that we live by. And that is my concern going forward, Claire. And okay. I'm going to love you and leave you if that's all right. I'm okay, so that, no, that's fine. Thanks, uh, Ruth. We really appreciate your contribution. We'll make sure that the links to Index are in the chat so that people can get involved with you as well. Uh, um, uh, thank you very much indeed. Okay, so um, if I come to you, uh, uh, Patrick, please. Uh, yeah, well, I slightly disagree with um, the consensus here in that I do think there's a de facto, at least, exit strategy. And for all, he's one of the villains of uh, of the piece in many people's eyes. I think Matthew Hancock is the one who set it out. Honestly, he says the strategy is suppress the virus until a va an effective vaccine is available for everyone. Right. So that's the plan. So we're in limbo uh, until the medics produce this miracle of a safe and effective vaccine, and then he's going to try and get everyone to take it, and then we'll go back to normal. I mean, that, that de facto is it. Now, 
Um, there's been lots of comments about individual government policies and whether they're logical or not. And we all have a mix of views on that, I think, and I support some of them. I thought rule of six, for instance, was proportionate given the evidence of, um, of a rise in incidence of the virus, but I think the curfew was daft, but we, we all have our own ideas. My worry is more, um, not whether government policies individually are wise, but what's the outer boundaries of the power to impose policies uh, and you know, another thing, for instance, is apart from the, the Emergency Act itself, there aren't don't seem to be any sunset clauses built into this stuff. So you know, Grant Shapps announced you've all got to wear masks on public transport. It didn't come with a six weeks, and I've got to go back to the House of Commons and argue from false, from first principles and convince people of that all over again. And and so many MPs in the major parties, and you know, I, I take what the contributor said about Leila Moran. I don't know if she might be the only Lib Dem to go liberal with, with a few Tory mavericks. Uh, but 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 the, the MPs seem to not be living up to their responsibilities to actively uh, scrutinise uh, the government. So what I fear is we're left in this situation where it's all about focus groups and opinion polls and the government strategy will change only when the majority in these polls tell them we're sick of lockdown, we're sick of distancing. Uh, and there's no intrinsic uh, outer limit that, that minority uh, views get protected by and there's no automatic sunset clauses built in uh, to these measures and you know all of that I find deeply deeply worrying. Uh, thanks Patrick. Uh, Silky. I don't know where to start. <laughs> so uh, no. Zone in on a couple. Um, uh, I, I mean I, I suppose one of the points that came up was the difference between the laws and regulations and then there was something about human rights I think uh, kind of being an assimilation between human rights and regulations human rights are you know form part of the the closest thing we have to constitutional law and um, they're completely fundamental to to British life and I and I like like I said before they they don't work by themselves I mean they're, they're an instrument to be to be used and to hold the government accountable with. And unfortunately, as I say, with honorable exceptions, the opposition has completely failed to do that and is sitting on the, fen uh, sitting on the fence on lots of the big issues at the moment, whether it's torture or today, um, uh, state spies committing crimes under the Covert Human Intelligence Sources Bill. I mean, there's an awful lot that's being rammed through parliament at the moment whilst no one's looking that is incredibly dangerous and, um, uh, to to British life itself and our and our values, um, which are in, entrenched in, in in Human Rights Act. Um, I care much less about whether it's cock up or conspiracy. I think it's neither. Um, I think it's an unhelpful dichotomy. I think it's probably a natural consequence of the set of circumstances and the kind of political structure that we have, which requires much more. It forces us to have much more introspection. Um, but I think the fact that this is happening, has anyone thought about what this would have been like under a different type of, of, of government? I don't even want to go there right now. But um, the fact that this is happening under Boris Johnson, a self-proclaimed liberal, says so many things. It says something about the fundamental nature of the political structure we have and the kinds of... Um, um, forces that 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 then has as people have pointed out it's the avoidance of um, liability risk 
in the early days, people were saying Boris the Butcher, that I think the government probably knew that they were going to be accused of having blood on their hands if they didn't take the most extreme, extraordinary measures. So there's this kind of natural, a kind of natural force that evolves around the kind of um, political culture and political structure that we, that we have. And I think it's also a reflection of how much we are so complacent um, <clears throat> I use that word deliberately because, of course, um, Boris Johnson used it the other day in a completely inappropriate way. Um, but how complacent we are about liberal values that someone like Boris Johnson can, having put the country under house arrest without a democratic basis, refusing to provide evidence basis, refusing to have any debate and trashing the institution of British parliamentary democracy, can stand in front of the nation and call himself a freedom loving Tory. You know, liberalism is not just about words. It's not just, you know, feel good rhetoric. It's actually practice and action. Um, and, it's, and we haven't seen uh, liberal kind of values put into into action under this government for some time so that is why I think the most important thing the thing I'm most interested to speak to people here about is what are we going to do how are we going to reclaim um, the values that are that are so important to us and that define us because we are at a very very dangerous point in time now I think we're almost beyond the point of return oh silky Sorry, that's a bit, that's a bit impressive. <laughs> no, but but obviously you raise you know a, a, a big question, which is what are we going to do? And although I don't want to say we're going to come out with a policy statement at the end of this, there is a sense in which I think we will probably all want to feel, you know, what the options are. But anyway, uh, the other thing is when this is all when it is all back to normal, I'm going to organise a debate between you and Luke about human rights legislation because you'll disagree with each other enormously on that but not to be slightly preoccupied by it now and uh, Luke your thoughts I was just about to be preoccupied by it oh well you can be a little bit but just uh, not a new debate tiny minute so I think there is a big difference between perhaps the kind of human rights that Silk is talking about i.e the, the right of free assembly freedom of speech freedom of expression freedom of thought those are what you might call small HR human rights. You know, they're, they're the ideas that have underpinned our justice system for a very long time, 400 years, 500 years in some cases. And then the, the sort of the legal framework that we have around human rights now, which have only existed since, you know, the mid of the uh, 20th century at the latest and in this country, uh, even later than that. And I think it's, it would be very wrong to rely on um, the legal framework around human rights to protect what we might call the, our idea of human rights, the idea that we should be free from certain state intrusions. Uh, and that's why I think, um, but because firstly, I think that often human rights challenges, you know, our human rights legal framework is uh, very, uh, thankfully, very, very weak. It doesn't put very much constraint on what, um, on the kinds of law that parliament can make uh, or the executive can make. Uh, and, it, it, and there is a significant degree of deference in the human rights tribunals, both here and in Europe, to a state's power to make its own democratic law. And it's recognised that when a state uh, creates its own legislation, the courts are very uh, uh, are usually quite reluctant to interfere in that process. But that's why I also think there's another reason why we should um, not rely on lawyers and QCs to sort this out. You know, I've seen a number of there have been a number of uh, legal challenges to the lockdown most recently from the most prominent I think is Simon Dolans that seeks to basically claim that making the 
making these regulations was unlawful or against or undermining human rights in some way. I think that actually exacerbates the problem that I've been talking about, which is the removal of the public from, from getting us out of this process. That my, my, my question to people who rely on the law to deliver social and political results is always the same, which is, well, what happens when it fails? Because if, as I think extremely likely, uh, any court in this country will find that the executive had the power to make the regulations, then that answers the question as to whether the lockdown was lawful. It doesn't answer the political question as to whether it was right. And fundamentally, the public have got to be the ones to answer the latter question. And I think the more we rely on lawyers and QCs to resolve the complex political questions of our time, uh, the more we will find ourselves in a political dead end, because most of the time it won't achieve what we want it to. And even if it does, um, those changes may not be democratically popular and therefore um, may not be as lasting as they might do had we bothered to win the argument um, with the public. I also have some limited uh, sympathy with the idea that um, we recognise how difficult it is for, for the government in this situation. I mean, I did have sympathy in that regard in March. Uh, and, and that's why I think along with almost everyone else in the country, we were happy to go along with these restrictions in, uh, and accept what we were being, what, what was being done. I think the problem we have now is that a real lack of leadership, you know, the idea that we are simply going to lock everyone up and, or, or shield everyone or keep these restrictions in place until there is a reliable vaccine. Well, that is no exit plan to speak of. That's not an exit plan. That's just a stay in place plan. Um, and one that is wholly inadequate. We've seen that this government change its tack a number of, uh, on a number of occasions. You know, we had Boris starting out the, the, just, just prior to the lockdown in February, perhaps before he realized how serious it was, saying that we were gonna mimic the Swedish response. And he's been made, you know, the, the lifting of the COVID restrictions. I think people are perfectly right to criticize when they say, oh, well, first we're being encouraged to go and eat out to help out, to go and uh, undertake social life again. And then two weeks later, on the basis of um, some, on the basis of new figures, being told that everything has to close down, I think that the government has to maintain a vision for how it's going to get us out of this. And I don't think that exists at the moment. And I think it's the lack of leadership that we, we that we should expect from our politicians. And it's that leadership that we are lacking at the moment. Okay, thanks, Luke. Now, listen, um, I'm going to whiz through a lot of people, so panel, you can kind of sit back a little. There's some real challenges there, you know, the frustration of what we can do. Should we use the law? I admire the fact that Simon Dolan is doing those judicial challenges because I'm glad to see someone doing something. But I tend to agree, Luke, that you're not end, you end up thinking, is that just an over-technical response? Um, but then, as I said at the start, you know, what is frustrating is that we're not quite sure. And I, I, I did want to ask people what they thought about this, but I'm constantly being told that the silent majority really do agree with me and that they're a silent majority, but I'm just not convinced. I, I, I think what Silky said was, I think a lot of people are not, haven't got that intellectual attachment to liberal freedom, ideas of freedom. And we, we might have to convince more people, but how do we go about it? You know, you can't, I can't just speak on everyone's behalf. So how do we deal with that? Um, anyway, lots there. Right, so I'm gonna whiz through. Uh, Rick Moore followed by Joe Hurley. Evening, everybody. Um, I keep trying to look at this in balance and kind of look at it from both sides. Um, initially, I was supportive of all the lockdown measures based on the lack of data that we had about the virus. We didn't know what was going to hit um, and looking at what was happening in other countries, especially Italy and Spain. 
um, I thought, well, we've got to take some extreme measures. And even though I didn't like it one bit, I still supported it. But lately, I find myself getting more and more concerned about the lack of parliamentary scrutiny. Um, and even in the last vote on the coronavirus legislation, only 354 MPs actually bothered to vote, um, which perhaps says what our elected representatives think about our civil liberties. Um, the other thing is what is the reaction being based on now? You know, the reaction to this so-called second wave seems to be based an awful lot on PCR test results. And there's a big concern to me, at least, and to others um, about false positives. And also how much are they picking up dead virus? I mean, I caught an article before I went out this morning on, um, on the TV about some lads in Italy that have been in eight weeks in isolation and still can't get a negative test to be able to come home. Um, and medical experts are saying that's down to uh, dead virus that's, that the, the, the tests are picking up. Um, now, they're not contagious. So what are they being locked down for? And is that a big factor in the massive results we're seeing now, given the, 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 the pickup in the testing? Um, the other thing is there seems to be a real lack of availability of data. Um, for me to get sort of local results in Blackburn where, where I am about just ward by ward number of cases, I'm having to do FOI requests to the local authority every week. Um, you know, that data just is not freely available. And if the data isn't freely available, what are they trying to hide? Um, so I'm going from initially being supportive to sort of thinking now you know just where are we going that said i still don't think that the government are deliberately trying to take away our liberties i think they've got ourselves back themselves backed into a corner um by the mainstream media and opposition parties that seem to be looking at everything in hindsight and they're not saying what they think should happen next they're saying what's gone wrong well, no one's got a playbook. No one's got a crystal ball. You've got to make a decision. And like I say, I think it's a case of government being backed into a corner and not knowing how to get out of it at this point. I think that's a very good point there at the end, um, uh, that, they, that, that, that they're a bit stuck and some of them are relishing it and some of them are just stuck. Uh, thanks, Rick. Uh, Joe, please. Um couple of questions. Um, I'm just wondering what people think then about um, the question of risk, which a number of people have mentioned, because if um, it's right, uh, as Patrick said, that um, the government strategy is around suppression and you're, and then a number of people, including myself, would be arguing for greater freedom. Does that mean that we have to clearly say that we're prepared to take the risk of a greater increase in death? And we've got to be really clear because Boris Johnson himself said right at the beginning, we have to accept that people are going to die. And I think he said it once. He's never said it again. And I wonder whether there's an, an aspect there where we have to accept the fact that if we don't want our um, um, public and social life to be utterly decimated, we do have to take the risk and the courage bit comes in there, which is uh, everyone's making that calculation, especially older generations, which is they're prepared to go out because they don't want to be uh, locked in their homes for the rest of their lives. And they don't know how long they've got left to live. So they're, they're taking a risk. And, um, and I know a number of people who are doing that. But then it comes down to the question of, of Luke's discussion around um, 
where do we argue for the area of action? And I'm wondering whether there has to be something, because it almost feels like we're entering into a whole other phase now, where we might not have been successful first time round in arguing, and maybe we need to be um, re-sort re of calibrate our own arguments and say the government no longer should be involved in issuing micromanagement of lots of different areas. They should be clearly responsible for care homes and hospital discharge arrangements and you know, a couple of other areas that we decide at a national level they should be responsible for. But what's happening is on a local level, you've got health and safety officials and um, managers within workplaces, all of those different areas where have the possibility of us getting involved are all in a similar way, very much top down. And I think that's where the areas of action are, because without that, you haven't got the possibility of dialogue, conversation, mediation, and being able to get a balance through conversation on what is a, a risk, you can't do it from home because all you have is the direct media and uh, influence from a very risk averse government. And so my final question, I think to the panel possibly to Luke is if what the government's doing is what they see now as a more targeted regional approach, which some people might have argued for. I think the targeted approach was more around care homes and the, the very vulnerable, but that's not the way it's playing out. Is, is there not a danger now that because the Conservatives didn't press the argument against the recent discussion in Parliament and that amendment fell, now all the discussion about how this is being controlled is happening at a local level, which seems to me even less in the public eye and if councils are now going to be doing what the government was doing, they're going to be doing at a local level, what the government has been doing at a national level, which is even more worrying because it seems it will be under even less scrutiny. OK, thanks, Jen. Um, uh, loads there. James, Pets, I, I, inevitably, there's a lot more hands, so people just uh, kind of speed a little. But anyway, um, so James, Pets. Uh, Alan Miller, and th and then I'm actually going to take Richard Taylor, who uh, who sent me a message saying his hands can't get his hand. Oh, it's it's there now. No, he's, he can't jump forward. All right, Jeff, James Betts, then There's Alan a of, Miller. A lot of very interesting discussion. Um, one of the, the the themes that one sees running through all of this is um, legitimate criticism about how the government is uh, handling these problems, um, and concern that the government is. Uh, acting with too great authoritarianism. The difficulty is that there is very little incentive for the state to act otherwise. It is a, a convergent instrumental goal to have more power. And so long as it is possible for the state to acquire more power under the guise of an emergency, uh, even a genuine emergency such as this one, uh, then it will do so, uh, no matter whether it's the right thing or not. And merely stating that politicians ought to do the right thing does not make, make them any more likely to do so. Does the panel think that it is time for a fundamental and radical change in the constitution in the UK and indeed around the world, uh, very greatly to dissipate state power in a way that is totally irreversible, to make sure that there is no concentration of power in the hands of politicians, and to make sure that there is no um, possibility of politicians acquiring more power for themselves abusively when given an excuse to do so? One. Uh, if one is to do that, one must, of course, have proper regard to how to deal with genuine emergencies. Um, and one 
the, the best situation in terms of, or the best resolution in terms of this kind of emergency would surely be to have a system whereby a panel of people who have scientific knowledge could make an application to court for a power which they would have to prove uh, is something that meets a specific test which is set out in advance and which would be granted for a limited period and in which other people who wish to contest that evidence could appear in court to deal with. That would, I think, be a rule of law solution rather than an authoritarian solution to the problem of genuine emergencies. The problem of politicisation of emergencies is a combination both of states, as, as in Hungary, but possibly also to a lesser extent around the world, using the emergency as a means of going further than is necessary to acquire power for themselves and abuse that power. Okay, and on the other hand, um, conspiracy theorists who, who deny that the emergency exists at all, even when it plainly does, uh, as a result of the politicisation. Okay, thanks, James. A very well worked through schema, whatever people think about its implications. Um, okay, so I've got Alan Miller in America, Alex Cameron in Spain, Liam Deacon, and then I'm going to, uh, and then my colleague Alistair, and then I'll come back to the panel, and then I'll come back out again. So, uh, uh, Alan Miller, please. Thanks, Claire. Um, I really thought both what uh, Silky said about supporting one another and Luke said about uh, judgment and us being able to exercise them are things that are really paramount now for anyone who wants to uh, do something about this. I think it's really important to have critical discussions and debate and assess why this has come about. And, and to be honest, we're all grappling with it, right? Because it's happening really fast. And as everyone keeps saying, us, very few of us are epidemiologists or virologists. But the uh, decision to kind of collaborate and show solidarity one another and ask questions is important. Um, and to that effect, uh, I'm involved with some people who set up a new initiative called Challenge, is its working title at the moment, which initially wants to challenge the rule of six, which in many ways goes to the heart of a lot of this draconian uh, impulse to sort of authoritarian uh, regulation. Uh, 20 minutes earlier, it was kind of introduced and then it was passed. Apparently only one person supported it in Parliament. Uh, Criminalises everything from five-a-side football to, as we know, uh, more than three kids meeting with their grandparents. Uh, and uh, uh, in addition to what the, uh, it will have a terrible impact across hospitality, which is where I spent a lot of my life. And we'd like to invite a lot of the people here, everyone really, to... Uh, to, to kind of get involved in that. There's actually a vote tomorrow in Parliament on it, on the rule of six. We're gonna release a statement with a manifesto club. But I think that just, just on that, so I'd like to share it with everyone, but just the thing also that I find tricky is this, is that I find that a lot of the smartest people that I tend to meet are now, uh, are now so convinced that there's something, um, there is something beyond that's going on because everything seems so bizarre and so ridiculous. And we see this data. And there has been, though, a historical push to do things. We've seen public space protection orders. We've seen the collapse of relationships, people increasingly anxious. It's very difficult to kind of sum all that up quickly. But I wonder what the panel thinks in terms of this. It's easy to say, well, it's neither cock-up nor conspiracy. But to still take a, a rational, interrogative approach that you can also make judgments about, but to, to say, you know, actually, this kind of impulse to authoritarianism has been their go-to position across all political parties. And anyone that, that, whatever our views are as it happens about whether, however contrived it is, there should be a common purpose for people who want to retain freedom and autonomy to challenge that. Uh, but also recognise, I don't want to throw the baby out of the bathwater. I don't want to get rid of all trust. I don't want to be cynical about every statement that every institution makes. I'd like to be sceptical. 
So I wonder what the panel thinks about that. And I'd like to invite everyone to join the challenge initiative that uh, Norris Windows and I and a few others have set up. Thank you. Great. And I, I'm really heartened to see more of these initiatives emerging because I do think there starts to be a bit of an echo, not an echo chamber, but just kind of different ways of approaching that. So well done, Alan and, and colleagues for doing that. And I will look out for it. OK, Alex Cameron, who I believe is from Spain. Buenas noches, Claire. Um, <laughs> thank um, I kind of, you, you know, sometimes you worry that um, our contribution or you might ask, Feels like it's a bit too kind of not on point. So I'm going to mention COVID once. Um, I think COVID has certainly accelerated a process that was already in place. So question on the question of liberty, I think I have noticed that equality has now become about equity. Free speech has become hate speech, and the right to assembly is now dependent on a kind of full elite morality and thought is now criminalised, Scotland being the most recent example. So the thing that I'm kind of worrying about or thinking about is how we might make the case um, for liberty when the public sphere is shrinking and contracting as opposed to when it was expanding. Um, I think this is a problem that COVID has sped, sped up. And I worry that we maybe assume too much um, when we talk about our liberties, it's not as obvious to people as we think it should be or might be the importance of liberty. Um, so that's my problem at the minute, how we make the case um, for liberty today because it's different than in the past. And finally, I'd like to agree with uh, Luke Gittos. I think we need to court the public and not the law. Okay, thanks, Alex. God, million dollar question there. How do we win these arguments today? Um, uh, I've got Liam Deacon, then I've got my colleague Alistair Donald, um, then I'm going to go back to the panel and then I'll start back again with Tanya. Okay, so uh, Liam, please. Hi, hi. Uh, hi. Um, yeah, the, 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 I'll lead on from what the guy before we said actually, how do we win that argument? Um, the, the only way that I can think at the moment is, is we need to make people sort of realise that freedom is not the enemy of safety and of community. Like one of the, the hardest things I really, really do want to hear what the panel say on this is one of the hardest things for me at this stage of the crisis is how there is an apparent or some people want there to be an apparent juxtaposition between how we've had some of the most wonderful displays of humanity and of sort of you know the shopping we all, we all did and, and and the great gestures juxtaposed with some of those terrifying things of humanity this guy running up on someone's funeral and 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 doing it and and and, and the tragic thing is that a lot of those people doing these terrifying things and this terrifying you know group think that's emerging is driven by goodwill um by by really some good underlying feelings and 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 I want to know from the panel, like, like, are those two things at conflict and how can we lessen that conflict um, of those wonderful things with those terrifying things? Because, you know, the, the government challenge to freedom is one thing, but there's this, this, this sort of, I think Silky called it this, this infection of the public mind, this public suspicion. And, and Luke spoke about sort of winning the argument with the public, another 
question someone on the asking a question asked about how are we being manipulated i, I don't know if we are but I, anyway i want to know um because you know 80 of the public agree with these latest lockdown things it's huge black people agree so how do we lessen that juxtaposition between freedom and safety and and and, and which will help freedom win out and, you know and then also where do we draw the line you know that guy running up in that 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 um, funeral that was clearly over some people's lines wasn't it but what other is someone shouting at someone on the bus too much or are they trying to do a good thing are they looking out for their their mum or whatever like where, where do we draw that line is there a way we can draw that line there's so many infinitely different complicated situations that pan out but how can we lessen that tension and draw those lines because i i want i want freedom to win but i don't want to be that guy that's going against the public will i don't want to be the guy that's putting people in danger so i want to lessen that conflict myself so if any guidance on that would be welcome please yeah i think uh, liam you just raised such a key point isn't it that kind of freedom safety tension but also how to be responsible citizens and i think silky was one of the people but all of us said we supported that we were more supportive of the lockdown at the beginning because we had a sense of social solidarity and so on. But, you know, I also don't want to be the kind of person who puts on social media, look how brave I am. I just went into Sainsbury's without a mask on. Do you know what I mean? Like my political action is to kind of like, you know, go around hugging people. <laughs> go around, hug I'm sure they'd be horrified if I ran anywhere near them. But you know what I mean? I, mean, I don't want it to be that the sort of way that you express yourself is to kind of frighten people because people are also, you know, wanting to... So anyway, key question, how we do it, where the lines are. I've got uh, uh, um, Alistair Donald next, and then I'll come to the panel. Yes, thanks. Uh, it's related to that, actually, because I wanted to come back to the point that uh, Richard raised fairly, fairly early in the discussion about uh, this question of the freedom from versus the freedom to. And you know, I, I, can, I can go with and support this idea that we need to um, advocate and, and work out how it is that we achieve the freedom to. But I think we do have to uh, acknowledge that there's a bit of a problem in, how, in, in, in this just now, and especially in how it's presented, because it often comes across as a very kind of individualistic demand. And in, indeed, it almost comes across as quite an individualizing thing as well. I suppose the, the main example that people might think of is, is the way that masks uh, and the right to not wear masks is, is, is presented, which is just kind of often comes across as, oh, I don't like them, I don't want to wear them, and it comes across as quite selfish. And even sometimes, uh, I, I was at a demonstration a couple of weeks ago where people were saying anybody who wears a mask is soft, which is kind of not really um, a, a type of freedom that's anything like the sort of uh, discussion that Luke was putting forward in, at, at the start of his introduction, where he, he talked about that Arendt view of, of freedom as working out how we live together, which at least implies uh, that freedom is a, is a tool of some uh, of, of kind of seeking social solidarity and 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 uh, uh, that we're you know articulating a way of where freedom as being uh, we're in it together. So I, I think you know the way that we articulate this is 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 quite important. And just a couple of examples have, have, have caught my eye in the last couple of days. There was the family that was reported on the BBC yesterday uh, that have decided uh, that they were going to take their grandmother, their 95 year old grandmother, out of the care home and take her back into the family home because that was the way that they thought. Uh, she could best be cared for and I thought it was a really it was a really good example because I think embedded in that 
assertion of we are we are going to uh, take action and respond was was a, a sense that we're going to take responsibility, which had a sort of communal element to it. And I think we kind of got to find ways of of posing freedom as, as as something that's communal. And again, in in Austria, it's been revealed in the last couple of days that ninety eight percent of people who uh, were found to have the virus have actually self isolated. Now Austria is a place where uh, the government have reined back the regulations and the laws a little bit and, and ask people to take responsibility. Compare that to, to this country where we were drowning in laws and regulations and yet not a lot of people, 18% I think it was found the other day, are, are taking that action to self-isolate. So given responsibility, asked to take the responsibility of making our own judgments, I think it's, it, you know, you can see that there's a kind of social content to that and I think we've got to find a way of drawing that out a lot more. Okay, thank you very much, Alistair. Okay, I'm going to start with Luke. And um, when I start back out, by the way, I'm going to mix it up a bit. But I'm going to, after the panel, I'll, I'll start with Tanya and then go to Paul Sapper, then Kevin Newell, and then Richard Taylor. So just so you know what I'm doing. But um, and anyway, right. So uh, let's start with you, Luke, for responses. Anything quick you want to pick up? Just a couple of points. I think it's very, very dangerous to believe that this is. And I tried to emphasize in my introduction that it, it's very important to recognize this is not some kind of authoritarian power grab. We're not being manipulated purposely by the government. And I certainly don't think this is a coherent political project through decades of recent governments. And I think there's just as much danger in, the, in that kind of conspiratorial thinking uh, than there is uh, in any other kind of bad argument that's around today. So I think we have to be extremely careful how we phrase this. In answer to Liam's question, I think the starting point has to be that um, we have to recognise that obviously when we disagree with people about how, how we should respond to this, um, we have to be um, extremely generous, understand that people are proceeding from a real sense that society is facing a serious threat and society is facing a serious threat. And it's only through recognising where the other person is coming from, our fellow citizen is coming from, that we might start to forge a solution in the course of our interactions that works for everyone but that's why the lockdown is such a dangerous response because it prevents those kinds of interactions from emerging i think the <clears throat> the examples that alistair's mentioned the 90 year old being removed from the care home and there's lots of people on social media showing how they're going to visit elderly relatives notwithstanding the fact they probably shouldn't be i think what this shows is that when people get together they work out solutions that work for themselves and that the law, the black and white letter of the law, will never be able to uh, accommodate the real inherent moral complexity that runs through all of human affairs. And that's why I don't think it's a it's 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 perhaps a, a, a juxtaposition that we see great moments of humanity and also people behaving very uh, scarily. You know, there will always be people who um, take the black letter of a particular law and 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 run with it to a, a point that it justifies immoral behaviour. And what those people are doing is they're failing to exercise judgment. You know, they're looking at the law and saying, well, anyone who disobeys the dictat of this particular black letter law must be behaving immorally. And of course, they're just as wrong as the people who claim that this is all a big conspiracy and it's all uh, a big push to take away our freedom. They're both wrong in the same way, but and they're also both failing to exercise their social responsibility to engage with their fellow citizen and, and reach a solution, a common solution to a social problem that, um, that, that is bigger than their own individual concerns. And I think that is the kind of social life that Arendt was arguing for. 
but I also think that's the kind of life that the that the, the lockdown gets in the way of. If if just very very quickly on this issue around um, the, again on the law, you know it's true that the government has reacted to particular social problems in the past, like antisocial behaviour, like domestic violence, uh, uh, with increasingly authoritarian measures. Um, and it's also to some extent true to say that when a government is invited to deal with a particular problem like that, it can only really do one of two things. It can either legislate or produce guidance. That's all really a state can do. But I think that, that that's why we have to understand these moments when we see authoritarian laws being introduced onto our statute books as a symptom of our political culture where problems what we that people tend to attempt to rely on the on the state too often to resolve complex social and political problems and if you do that then all you're really going to get back is a new law and that new law probably is going to be quite authoritarian because these sites of human experience are often quite intimate and and closely guarded um so i think what well, we finally need, finally yeah yeah just finally in a sentence that ties back to the point about what aaron can teach us which is that we need to own these social problems we need to discuss them and recognize that a law cannot always intervene to prevent them or to solve them for us we have to take a more communal approach to solving these social problems and, and to that extent uh, we can have a common response to the lockdown as we do to those problems that i uh, mentioned in my introduction antisocial behavior etc okay thanks silky um i'm going to disagree with luke i think it's the definition of an authoritarian power grab and you don't have to believe that it's a conspiracy in order to recognize that i think the point that james made uh, better than me is is almost that this is a, a kind of function of the state and it's the state's default way of of dealing with things a, a really good point was raised about um how do we um, reassert liberal values and um, I think we have to be ceaselessly rational, informed and we have to be compassionate as well and social solidarity is really really important especially now more than ever and I think we also need to look to institutions in um, our country, I mean I think some have been better than, than others, um, but to, to uh, you know, always defend those values and do so with the institutional knowledge of how of how to do that. That's why I'm I couldn't be prouder to be at Big Brother Watch right now. We're ten years old. We've always stood up for these values, and now I think we're more important than ever. I just wanted to raise one other, come back to one other point that was made about um, risk and and death. One of the things that I think is quite um, that, that really took me aback about in the early days of the government's response to this is the way in which there was clearly immediately emerged this um, authoritarian dream of control. And in fact, they even put it into the, you know, tri tripartite mantra in the end, control the virus, which is a real, a real fallacy. And also it relies on the idea that biological life is something distinct, this kind of fundamentalist policymaking relies on the fallacy that, bi that biological life is something distinct from social and economic decisions, which is a very, very strange thing. And it's even stranger that that could be sold to the left and the opposition in any way, because of course on the left, you absolutely recognize that economic decisions are fundamental to the enjoyment and prosperity um, and longevity of, of biological life. So we, we have, we, there's a, there's a, um, a kind of a, a, a philosophical um, 
thing to to grapple with here and it, and it comes back i think to the basic function of the state they of course they want to control something that's immediately quantifiable cases deaths even though both of those are often contested statistics in terms of what they really mean and how we should interpret them and all the other excess deaths have been largely ignored i mean there's a real imbalance there so i hope that after this if we're to come through this in any kind of sensible way that we can have a a deeper examination of the, the the nature of statehood that we have because i think after this and 9 11 um you know we we are finding ourselves um as i said before really be, beyond the point of return in terms of um liberal values okay thanks I, th I think setting out what we need to do is going to be very important because we really have to plan for the future because we are in a crisis now but we do now to at least it's a call to arms about what is required for moving forward um Right, I'm going to take Patrick, then we're going to whiz through everyone else got their hands up and it's got to be fast. Patrick, one thing or maybe to say to the whole audience and a bit to Patrick is a lot of us who were involved in the campaign for Brexit thought that we'd really had a boost for democratic agency and that people felt confident that they could go out and change the world or change things for the better and took back control. It's been um, something of a, a to see the stuffing knocked out of people to see people kind of losing that sense of agency has been quite depressing i mean in in that sense is it hidden away somewhere is it going to come back i mean people did begin to say we are not going to have everything the state does is not going to just tell us what to do or the experts can't get us to de be demobilized anymore and yet here we are uh, well, but anyway anything you want to pick up on yeah, um, I, I mean, nonetheless, I think um, on balance, most of the people who voted for Brexit would rather, you know, the British state, unaccountable as it's it's been, make these decisions than some kind of European super state or even farther uh, remove. I just wanted to make, I, I, by the way, I'm going to have to drop out after this uh, contribution, but I want to make two points. First of all, we've seen again, and it's been illustrated in all kinds of contexts down the years, that governing by edict, it's like the crack cocaine, isn't it? It's, it's so much more convenient uh, for ministers to do that. And, you know, we've gone from at the outset, Boris is the great persuader, and I think the guy is usually naturally a great persuader, uh, very quickly to Matt Hancock threatening to shut down all the parks in the country because someone had posted on Twitter a picture of people sitting on the grass. Uh, and even Boris now, I don't know if people watch his number 10 Twitter feed, which de has developed a really kind of high-handed uh, edict mentality telling people what they're allowed to do. Uh, so the art of persuasion has gone by the wayside. But, but the, a sort of more key point that relates to some of the things that people like Liam were saying, um, I think we've, we've lost a lot of our capacity for self-policing. Uh, and I think that, that, that in general, peer pressure or even stigma is less, less uh, effective than it was. And I would relate that to a loss of social cohesion, to uh, hyper-diversity, to atomization, uh, more urbanization. Uh, and we're always told by people like Sadiq Khan that diversity is our strength. Well, diversity can make life more interesting in certain contexts, but it's not necessarily a strength. You have uh, Trevor Phillips' famous thing about parallel communities that don't interact and don't feel any loyalty uh, to the whole being a very dangerous thing. And then you have a whole bunch more people, I think, uh, who see this crude multiculturalism, uh, hyper-diversity, and just think it's everyone for themselves and have no sense of uh, kind of group uh, responsibility or be beyond their mates. So in that context, uh, 
where that peer pressure self-policing doesn't work so well anymore as it might have done say in the second world war living in a village the, the bloke in the street who left his lights on would be pretty unpopular and wouldn't do it again. We're miles away from that in our big cities now. And I think um, that partly explains the drift we've had to this centralised control uh, and government by edict. And we need to address that by rebuilding a sense of cohesion in our communities, which is a very, very difficult thing to do uh, in the modern world. Thank you very much uh, uh, and thanks Patrick for your contribution and um, the panellists are dropping like flies but still a bit of stamina left in the audience so I'm going to whiz through. Okay, Tanya. Is Tanya Can I hear me? Ah, yes, I'm here. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I just very, very briefly, I have um, two things to say. I am really worried about this idea of a, a new normal, the concept of a new normal. And, I, and my demand, if you like, moving forward would be for a daily press conference to not just tell us all these shock statistics, but to tell us at every day what, which of our civil, li civil liberties are being denied us today. And I think we should do that so it is very clear to everybody and it doesn't become normal. It becomes something that is highlighted every day. What of our, which of our civil liberties are we being denied every day? And that should continue until the answer is none. Secondly, I think the only way to move forward in terms of action that we take to sort out this problem is through democracy. And I think six months of these draconian measures without any review is ridiculous and too long and not necessary. We could have a review by our MP on a monthly, maximum two monthly basis. And that, that vote when the MP votes, because it is such a contentious issue and it's not a vote that's along party lines, it should be a free vote. So. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, very, really useful. Uh, Paul Sapper. Thanks, Claire. Um, I came slightly late to the conversation, so forgive me if I repeat anything that's been said. But um, in, in my opinion, a large part of the problem is that uh, the government doesn't want to change the draconian, draconian approach um, to the coronavirus because changing their approach would mean having to admit that they made a mistake in the first place in this draconian approach. Um, it would mean them having to admit that the death rate of the virus is not as high as it was initially feared. Like when the measures were first introduced, it was a fear that it was like a 10% death rate or something. We know that it's so much less than that now. And they would also have to admit that uh, there are other alternatives to containing the virus, which are as effective or maybe more effective than the draconian approach, like the Swedish approach, which don't crush the economy and inhibit people's rights in the same way that uh, our government's approach does. So I think they've gotten used to ruling by decree and being unchallenged. Um, and I think the only way that's going to, change as if they are actually challenged quite strongly um and i think for that to happen public opinion needs to really change because as liam said overwhelmingly the public does actually support these measures um so and i think that's largely because people are afraid because only seeing one side of the argument presented in the media um a lot of the time with there are exceptions there's been some very like good people in the media sort of giving the other side of the argument showing that there are other approaches to the virus but I think it is very important that, um, I think, for example, the Daily Mail has been very good in showing that there are unintended consequences to lockdown and that there are other ways to approach it. 
I think people need to also write to their MPs, I think it's been mentioned before, sort of saying that we think that the approach to, that the government is taking the virus needs to be different. Um, just showing that there there is public, uh, there are people in the public who support a different approach. Um, yeah, thank you. Okay, thanks. Uh, thanks, Paul. Um, so I've got Kevin Yule, Richard Taylor, and Mo Lovett. Next few people. Uh, Kevin. Yeah, I mean, I, th I feel like I'm at odds with quite a few people here because I feel like, you know, a lot of people are taking this libertarian approach. And I do <sighs> think there are certain situations whereby it's right that the needs of the community actually trump the needs of the individual. And we, and, and in that, you know, there are situations like that wartime and for instance, health emergencies as well, but this is not it. And I think that's the key to this argument is we have to show that there is no justification for the draconian measures that are going on, but we also have to show that there are completely damaging aspects to this whole thing that we're not going to see for sometimes. And one of the things that worries me is, is a sort of takeoff of anti-vaccination and how this, you know, vaccinations are necessary in, for, for the protection of all of us. And we have now a cynicism about anything that the government's going to do. And I think that's very, very dangerous for um, uh, authority. And, and the takeoff of, of conspiracy theories uh, can be extraordinarily harmful to society. And I think we have to emphasize that's the damage that's being done right now, and that um, there is simply no justification. You can't change the goalposts a hundred times. Okay, thank you, Kevin. That's a, a good challenge and one which I think does sum up some of the tensions in this discussion. And we do need to play those through and not pretend we all agree on everything because it's not quite straightforward like that. Um, okay, so I've got Richard Taylor, Mo, Lovett, and then Marcus. Uh, thank you, Claire. Um, I'm really, really excited about tonight's uh, debate. Thank you, Carmelias, for hosting it. Firstly, let me say, spare a thought for us here in Wales, right? Because it's completely different. You know, all the conversation I've heard from the panellists tonight and your guests has all been about the UK policy. As many of your guests may know, we're under the Welsh Parliament, the Welsh Government under devolution, which is completely different. So you can imagine the confusion for people in Wales. I know some of you can't even understand my accent. I can get that. But... We've, we've, lived, we've been living under these draconian measures. In fact, 74% of people in Wales now are in some form of lockdown or restrictions here in Wales. And what we've seen is we've seen businesses being affected, people's mental health being affected, young people being affected. No one's really talked about the effects of these measures, not that I've heard tonight so far in the debate. The effect that it's having on people, you know, just everyday ordinary people, it is devastating, not just our economy, but people's well-being. And these draconian measures are an attack on our civil liberties. Of course they are. To have things legislated for that takes away the freedom to do things that we would do normally, including impinging on our human rights, to me, is it's illegal. I go that far to say it's wrong. But yet we have been persuaded by government these are the right actions to take because we want to save the NHS, we want to look after the economy, but yet businesses are closing, people's lives are at risk, mental health, people who struggling with mental health issues, that I've spoken to even this week. And you know, there's an old saying, I'm a, I'm a recovering drug addict. I was an ex-drug addict, you know, 20 years ago, uh, went through rehab and everything else. I'm used to have a saying, prevention is better than cure. Some of you may have heard of it. Well, the reality is we don't, we're not able to prevent this virus and we can't cure it. 
So the best thing we can do is learn to live with it, the same as we've done with the, the flu and other viruses that are out there. We've learned to live with them and shield those most vulnerable, of course, and those with underlying issues, but let people get on with their lives. Stop the conversation of new normal, this political rhetoric that people keep using, because it's driving me nuts, by the way. As you can tell, I'm a passionate Welshman. We need to get on with life. This is destroying people and taking away our civil liberties is one of them. And it's eroding at the very fabric of our nation. And we need to stand up to it. Now, one thing I will say is this. I need to say this on record. Here in Wales, our health minister, Vaughan Gethin, has not ruled out mandatory vaccinations here in Wales. Now, I'm all for if a vaccination works, try and test it. Brilliant. But to, to suggest to the people of Wales that they can legislate potentially to make vaccinations mandatory, that tells you more than you need to know about the kind of current state that we're living in, not just in the UK, but here in Wales. And these things need to stop. There needs to be a voice. We need to speak up and speak out against this because we cannot allow these politicians to take draconian measures to control us as people. We have the freedom of speech, freedom of thought, and the freedom to live. And we've got to live those out, Claire. Thank you very much. I can always rely on you, Richard, to make a lively, passionate contribution there. <laughs> Uh, great, you did the people of Wales proud with that. Right, um, okay, Mo, please. Yeah, how am I supposed to follow that, Richard? Come on. Well, Claire, well, you're brilliant anyway, anyway, so you're right. <laughs> I, I just wanted to come back to this question of agency that you raised in, uh, in, in relation to the Brexit vote, uh, Claire. And Luke mentioned it at the beginning about the impact this is having on, on human uh, agency. And I think we watched that being steadily eroded right at the very beginning people were taking responsibility for themselves for their neighbors for their family we saw a huge rise in volunteer behavior and all the rest of it and the more the government has sought to micromanage this to take responsibility away from us the more that has kind of impacted on people feeling um, that they can be responsible for their own lives and those that they care about so i think that's a really big thing we watched that just kind of steadily erode away um, Silky made this wonderful um, rallying cry to rational people everywhere, and I, I, I love that when you said that, Silky. Um, the problem is, it's a full-time job keeping up to date with um, all the different medical developments, the clinical, the data that's coming out, and um, the media is not doing a great job at that. So actually one of the things that's also having an impact on a human agency is the very real fear, fear that people feel and I don't think we should underestimate the fact that ordinary people are actually quite fearful and they're not getting a kind of um, temperate tempered measure so I'm in the position right now of trying to explain to my elderly neighbor that her 44 year old daughter who's just tested positive for COVID is probably going to be fine but how on earth do I kind of temper the message that she's been getting on a daily basis um, through the media but I think there is some hope I mean Alistair talked about those people that kind of sprung granny out of the home. Uh, I know quite a few people who are saying, you know, if they lock my kid up at university, I'm going to buy a long ladder and I'm going to go and take my kid out there. So I think when it does impact people personally, they get over that kind of fear. And I, I, feel, I feel that it, it is with the language and compassion and responsibility for ourselves and for each other, that human agency, where we win that argument. And it's not necessarily with the lofty language of liberty, which I'm not sure, um, you know, appeals to everyday people. The final thing just to say is, although fear is kind of paralyzed society, I also think it's paralyzed the elite. I mean, I think we've got an absolutely weak leadership and they're absolutely terrified and haven't got a clue what to do. Um, so I think that's something to bear in mind. 
Okay, thanks, Mo. That, uh, thanks very much. Um, so I've got uh, Marcus uh, uh, and Monica. Marcus Hi, thanks. First. Yeah. Um, I've watched a lot of people I know on social media uh, tearing into each other um, about this, and both sides consider themselves to be rebels, and there are, there are rebels for lockdown and there are rebels against lockdown, and both are starting to look like caricatures of each other. Um, I think to kind of get over this caricaturing, the rebels who are against lockdown need to ask themselves, how serious does a disease have to get before it justifies curtailment on our civil liberties? And let's say we, can, we don't get rid of this disease, or let's, see, let's say the next SARS comes along, we may have to make concessions on that. And for those who are for the lockdown, how far do our civil liberties need to be curtailed before it goes too far? And then for both, like how do you rebel without simply being antisocial? And do we have to redefine here now during COVID what antisocial means and what isn't antisocial? What is a rebellion and what is just being an ass? Thank you. Beautifully posed that. How do we rebel without being antisocial? Whichever side you're on. Nicely put. Um, okay, so I've got Monica followed by Martin. Okay, so I think what I'm going to say is going to be incredibly unpopular with everyone else in the virtual room. Um, because everybody's been saying that the government's so-called draconian authoritarian, authoritarian measures are an infringement of our human liberties, our, our personal liberties, our human rights. And we're blaming the government for that. But I don't, I haven't heard anybody talk about the actual culpability of the public because I think that many sections of the public have shown by their behavior that they are, I don't know, too stupid, too selfish, too stubborn to exercise common sense and care and consideration for other people. And I think that has panicked the government into action. Uh, you know, we've got evidence of the way people have behaved going down to beaches, pubs, raves. Um, you know, if we are supposed to have a social contract between ourselves and the government as Hobbes and Rousseau and other people expounded. You know, it's a two-sided agreement. It, it needs action on both sides. Also, the, I, I, I really believe there are different tiers of liberty. If you insist on an absolute freedom of your liberty, whether it's liberty to speak, to say what you like, do what you like, you are almost certainly going to infringe on other people's liberty. And I think it is very difficult for everybody's uh, liberty, everybody's freedoms to be equally recognized. Um, some freedoms are clearly a case of one or the other. Every time you open your mouth or say something, you are gonna offend somebody. And that person may um, feel that their right not to be offended has been infringed. So it's just, I think, something that people ought to bear in mind. Thank you. Thanks, Monica. Tempted though I am to have a row with you. Um, actually, what you've said is what I hear from most people. So, uh, you know, I, I know that what you've said, and I don't mean that in an insulting way, I think you've articulated very well the way a lot of people feel about not being able to trust people to behave. I said that a bit at the beginning. So it's a completely valid uh, uh, point to make. We've got Martin uh, followed by John. We're nearly finishing now. Everyone, just so you know. Evening, Claire. Thanks for hearing me. I'm a retired science professor, and I just wonder if the panel's aware of the excellent work um, of professors of epidemiology, uh, Gupta, Bhattacharya, and Kuldorf of Oxford 
uh, Harvard and Stanford universities, um, who are offering a, a scientifically supported way out of the impasse, if anybody will listen to them. It is rational, um, it is compassionate, uh, and it is informed. Uh, they were interviewed on The Unheard today, if anybody wants to follow up on YouTube, and they've also produced a declaration on the web which people can review and sign with a view to finding a, a, a route out of the impasse. That was my one point. And the other was, I wonder if the panel's aware of the work of the German inquiry into the German handling of uh, the corona crisis um, and the significance of that in relation to the Nuremberg Code. Uh, there's a, a, a doctor called Rainer Fuhlmich, who has a YouTube site where he presents the preliminary results of that inquiry. Uh, he worked on the uh, legal challenge to Deutsche Bank and Volkswagen regarding the emissions scandal. And now they're gonna take on the German government's coronavirus response. And there's information there on that um, proceedings as a potential breach of human rights. Just wanted to ask if you were aware. Thanks very much. Not everyone will be, and I very important contributors to this debate we should all be exploring and looking at. So thanks for that, Martin. Um, John, followed by Jan. Hi, I'm John today. Um, looking Hello. around the world, <laughs> there seems to be something of a paradox here, that there are a number of countries on different continents, different cultures, where normalcy and normal rights were taken away very early on, but they've had high levels of normalcy and restoration of normal rights since. And I was reading just today that in Sri Lanka, which admittedly the population is about a third of ours, which probably makes it a bit, e bit easier, but they were quarantining returning residents rigorously for a month. They have had virtually no cases up until the last few days, and now they have a very localized lockdown. And they've been living normally there, and I think that's true in quite a number of other countries that were rigorous from the start. So those that sacrificed rights very early on, perhaps are enjoying them now. You know, when we were enjoying the normalcy of crafts or Cheltenham or unrestricted travel, whatever we wanted to do, other countries were sacrificing. We're sacrificing now. And perhaps because of what was done wrong by the government and by individ and individuals in this country, we now only have the choice between different forms options. Yes, I love the case of Rita Perrett. Her family seems to have been motivated by love and care as much as my rights, it seems to me. Um, it looks possible that cures in the form of remdesivir, dexamethasone and monoclonal antibodies might actually be available before the vaccine. So that might change some of the picture. And I think Sweden is a poor comparator because it has so many unique features. So if we try did, it would be far worse here. Okay, thank you very much. Last couple of points before I come back to finish off with the, the couple of um, panellists we have left, um, but that is really helpful, thank you. Okay, uh, uh, Jan. Okay, can you hear me? Um, I, think, I think that so long as we don't have a sense of active citizenship, governments are gonna go and take on, continue to take on additional power and people will continue to look to the law for solutions rather than to their fellow citizens. And then we need, we need a different concept of the citizen, one that doesn't see the state as a benign parent, but as the servant of the people who themselves are active citizens. I think that we have a problem today in that people can't imagine 
what it's like to be a free citizen because it's been given only lip service for so long. And we almost live in a pre-political age where the idea of the active citizen, the idea of the active sub subject has been replaced by the concept of a citizen as subject really. Um, and I think that it's very easy for, it's always much easier for all of us to pose a, to criticize than to pose an active, a, a positive alternative, but that's what we really need today to inspire people. Um, and just as an example, I would just like to, to pose um, that people look at things like the example of ancient Greek democracy, where the idea of an active citizen made, made people come out of their houses and go to the, the public square every day to engage in civil debate. They didn't stay at home because they had an idea that what was really important was to be a good neighbor, to be an active citizen. We don't have that idea anymore. We have much more the idea that we should depend on the state. And I just think that if you've only ever known margarine, you can't imagine butter. So that's why art and culture and imagination are so important today. That's what we need to have a pose a positive alternative to show people what an active citizen would be in order to take on the COVID restrictions. Thanks very much, Jan. Um, Ella, I believe you want to say something? Yes, thanks, Claire. Um, I just wanted to, uh, something that Monica said um, made me think when she mentioned Hobbes and um, Hobbes' social contract, which is, I mean, we are in, in some ways quite literally living that at the moment in terms of we, you know, the idea that a public gives up some of their personal freedoms and liberties in order to live under the protection of the absolute ruler. Um, not, I don't think Boris Johnson can quite qualify as an absolute ruler um, yet, but the sense that we are giving up our and sacrificing our civil liberties for protection from a virus is very much the case today. And it's actually, I think you have to think you have to bring in more into focus this idea of the problem of safety versus freedom, which has been picked up on throughout this debate as being a block to democracy, which is at the heart of the, the problem with the question of civil liberties that we're kind of grappling with this evening, which is that if you um, do not have a full blooded belief in the idea of mass engagement in politics through democracy of um, of freedom of speech, of civil engagement, of discussion and debate, um, because that you want to be have the idea that you're being protected from something, then it's always going to be a trade-off. I think we just have to put in, you know, tonight's discussion and the problems we face a little bit into context, which is that one of the reasons it's not, you know, people aren't taking to the streets um, in mass numbers protesting against you know, because the clampdown on civil liberties is because we weren't very free before. You know, we, we weren't living in fantastic democratic times. We were not, uh, we did not have mass engagement in politics. We had problems before. So when we're talking about the new normal, I flinch when people say the new normal, but I also think that perhaps the, the bringing into sharp focus, the problems with uh, society today, the problems with our attitudes to democracy might, you know, the, the, experience of the pandemic might pose some interesting challenges to us to come up with genuinely with a new normal um, and a new way of, of dealing with things um, and a new perhaps fresh um, defense of democracy coming out of this. So perhaps to put a kind of positive spin on this, what, what can we leave behind in the old normal and not look back to the good old times of when life wasn't actually that great, but think about how we can reinvent after this pandemic, because even though there might not be an exit plan, we should, we should make an exit plan and it should involve a defence of democracy. Uh, thanks so much, Ella. Thanks for doing all the work behind the scenes as well, making sure I don't 
mess up. So can Silky, can I have your uh, final thoughts, please? Well, I just want to say thank you so much. And it's been so interesting uh, listening to and, and learning from from everyone in here and so many different perspectives. But I think you know, Ella had a great uh, summary there and that also the sentiment that we take things into our I have to be careful how I say that, take things into our own hands to some degree in terms of if we want to have a brighter future, then we don't always need to look externally um, to find that. Um, and if we, uh, yeah, I, I think to that end that we have already seen, um, pro we have seen some protests. And I think whether it's actually, whether it's Black Lives Matter or whether it's um, the kind of uh, anti, broadly anti-lockdown one, there is a common thread um, throughout a lot of the social unrest at the moment. Um, and there's certainly an appetite for change. And we do have to, I think, you know, organi organizations like this and, and events like this is so important for um, initiating that imagining of a better future. Also, I want to say that's precisely what Big Brother Watch exists to do. We exist to fight for a free, freer future. So if anyone... Um, is, is inclined to then of course please come and come and join us um because the next the next few weeks and months um let alone years are really really critical for 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 setting what kind of world we're going to walk into uh thanks silky and i, I just want to emphasize the importance of the work of big brother watch and people keeping in touch with this and us all kind of sharing information that's part of the it's you know sometimes people say have you seen this epidemiologist? Have you watched this virologist or the rest of it? But we don't have enough sharing of materials in relation to freedom and the arguments for civil liberties and freedom. And I think we need more of that. So uh, uh, Luke, uh, your final thoughts, please. I'll just be very quick. I couldn't agree more with the importance of dissenting voices within the scientific community, because for someone like me who is scientifically illiterate, I'm afraid to say, uh, I think that it's very easy to become alienated from the very complex underlying scientific arguments. But I do think there was a time when we saw the most recent graph from the government uh, advisors, uh, uh, Patrick Vallance and uh, Chris Whitty, uh, dealing with the possibility of exponential growth, that actually there was a degree of public, um, uh, public questioning of, of that use of that graph, because it was very clear that that the graph that predicted doubling result doubling cases every week was not a prediction but was deployed in the knowledge that it would be used as a prediction and you know we saw that the government conceded that that was the reason why that graph was used so i think there is a sensible now questioning of not the science but the way that the science is communicated and i really think scientific dissenting scientific voices in the community is, is a very welcome development I think the most complex political problem that's been hinted at through another number of contributions is how we reinvigorate the public and bring them back into this discussion, because I really do think that the, the lockdown and, and all the legal developments since March have had the effect of really exhausting people, of really making people feel as though they have very little control over what is happening. And I don't mean to be too dispiriting about this, but, you know, it is a fact that people who attend the alternative lockdown um, uh, demonstrations, you know, they have been arrested and prosecuted. And that's, a, that's not a risk that a, a large number of people are probably going to be willing to take. That's even if you can convince them um, that protesting is a good idea. I think any response that we try to formulate has to be collaborative. It has to convince people who are currently very frightened of this virus that freedom is worth defending. 
And in order to do that, we have to have a really clear idea as to why freedom is important. But that's not going to be easy. It's not going to be an easy fight to win with a public who are um, who, who are in the shape that they are at the moment, I think. But, but the thing, I suppose, the starting point is um, more discussion, more events like this and more uh, questioning. And the more we do that, I think the more we will encourage the idea that judgment and considered human behavior has arguably or should arguably have a greater role to play in defeating this crisis than law and regulation. Uh, thanks very much, Luke. I'm going to get everyone to clap in a minute, but I just want to say a couple of things um, just to, uh, to by way of finishing off. I really want to thank the panel, uh, all of them for their contributions, but also some fantastic contributions, both in the chat, but also in the in the discussion we've had, because, you know, we are fragmented, we are atomized, and this might be a pale imitation of the real public square and a real debate where we could all go off to the pub and fight and argue. We could read each other's body language in the meantime and kind of pick up on on, on cues and so on. It's not the same, but we have to use the tools that we have to try and ensure that the public square still stays alive in some fashion and that debate and discussion is had out. So I hope that you will come to other events that the, the uh, uh, Academy of Ideas are organising, you know, and they can take all sorts of form. Tomorrow night, we've got a book club discussing The Wedding, a wonderful novel by Dorothy West. Um, uh, from the, uh, um, uh, one of the Harlem writers and you might well not have read the novel come along and be inspired to read it or if you have read it come along and join in that discussion but we will be coming back to having our political discussions over the next few weeks and uh, so I just hope you'll join us but there's just something uh, to say something positive just at the end I have been writing about and arguing for freedom for many a long year and you know sometimes people thought I was exaggerating it's that it was under threat. People thought when I said free speech was rather fragile in society, people didn't believe me. Freedom sounded very abstract. The one thing that you can say now is the fight over freedom is well and truly a concrete fight that everybody knows about. And it is up to us to take advantage of a bad situation. <laughs> I know it's bad, but to say at least people know what it's like to lose your freedom. And let's have that kind of conversation. It is also the case that I spoke to some lockdowners pro-lockdowners um, uh, uh, today, actually, uh, locally, who basically were not sympathetic to my arguments necessarily on freedom, but they themselves did say that they can't stand how atomized people are and the distrust, and they hated the COVID marshals. And that gave me the basis for having a conversation about how you build social solidarity without it sounding like I was just a kind of libertarian lunatic who was going to not wear a mask. So we've all got to make more of an effort. It's up to us, those of us who care about freedom, to find better arguments in order to win them. So um, Ella, can you unmute everyone so we can all clap the speakers and um, we'll be, stay open for 15 minutes so people can chat to each other uh, uh, informally. But thank you to Luke and Sophie who are left, but also uh, uh, um, to Patrick and Ruth who are with us and to all of you for being here. So thanks a lot. And to remind you to give us money. I forgot, uh, give us money, that's it. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you would like to hear more of our podcasts or subscribe to them, visit academyofideas.org.uk forward slash podcast. Thank you.